the Hope Tree Christmas dinner, and uh, I think we, we ended up serving close to about 140-ish families. So we had all the tables set up in here, 140-ish families. Counting all of our volunteers, we had probably just under 200 folks here. And so it was just a great time, man. Hope Tree uh, is just really thank, thanking us, and it was just a blessing for us to be able to serve and encourage and to love on them and show the love of Christ. And it, it was just a great time. And then yesterday... Uh, one of our small groups had a, what would you call that? What, what was that yesterday? What was that, Barry? Tina? An Afternoon with Santa at Hyde Park over here. We've been doing some things with Hyde Park uh, for several years now, but, but I feel like this year we've really kind of been consistent uh, being in there. And just to, even since the summertime, we've probably done, uh, counting the reading program that we do in the summer, we've probably done six, seven events over at Hyde Park just in the last six months, and it has been awesome, and so one of our small groups did a Santa event, as you call it, um, over there. That was their idea, and they asked us to kind of partner with them, and so I think um, I heard 27 kids, I think, went through, and seven adults. Did seven adults sit on your lap, Santa? Did they ask for stuff for Christmas? Okay. Um, that's, that's, That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So, man, we just praise God for what He is doing and the opportunities that we have to uh, just show the love of Christ in our community. And uh, so, man, I just want to thank God for that and uh, thank you guys, everyone who's part of that volunteering, uh, making much of Jesus in our community. Amen? Amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the Old Testament book of Psalms. Psalms. We spent a lot of time there this past summer, and uh, I said that I liked it so much that we may come back to it during Advent season. And, of course, we are in Advent season when we are waiting uh, for the, uh, the coming of Christ. And so we're going to be in Psalm 2 this week. We probably won't be in the Psalms next week. I'll just go ahead and tell you that. But, but we are this week. And so Psalms is kind of in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 2 is where we're going to be today. All right? So I was, I was thinking, I was telling my wife, Robin, by the way, we had a great time last week, uh, our anniversary, we, we w- w- went out and it was, it was a fun time, great time, we had a great time, and so uh, that was a blast. But I was telling her the other day, I said, I think this is the first, we've been here for nine and a half years, and uh, this is our 10th Christmas here, and I don't think it's, it's ever snowed before Christmas uh, since we've been here. Uh, anybody testify to that? I mean, I don't, I don't think it has, correct? Yeah, in the last nine and a half, ten years? Yeah, yeah. So it's crazy weather this past weekend, or this weekend, I should say. Anyways, all right, Psalm 2. Are we ready? I'm reading from the ESV. It should be on the screen for you. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, your, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for uh, today. We thank you for, God, just that you are you're sovereign and you're in control. God, you're the creator of the universe. And we just thank you, God, for the beauty of your creation. Father, I thank you for your word. And I just pray that as we study together, as we continue in our worship together, God, that your spirit would just be present here and that we would, uh, God, that your son Jesus would be exalted. I pray, Father, that we would see just how beautiful he is and that we would see our need for him. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said earlier, we are in the middle of Advent season where we celebrate the incarnation, God becoming flesh, uh, coming into the world. And over, so over the next few weeks, what I want to do is take a few passages of Scripture from the Bible and ask the question, what did Christ uh, come to accomplish? And so today what I want to do is I want to show you from Psalm chapter 2 that Jesus came to establish His kingdom. Jesus came to restore dominion that was lost because of our sin and our rebellion against God, right? This little baby that was born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago was born as a king, and Jesus wants to be king of our lives and in our hearts, right? Jesus, Jesus not only came to be our Savior, but he came to also be our king, now, Psalm 2, when you read Psalm 2, it doesn't give the author the type of the, the description there, uh, but, but if you, you read Acts chapter 4, verses 25 and following, uh, the apostles that are praying there actually say that David, King David from the Old Testament, writes Psalm 2, because they quote this psalm in Acts chapter 4. And they quote this psalm, and they say that the Holy Spirit spoke through King David as David penned these words. And so David writes Psalm 2, not only as a king, but as a, a prophet. Uh, psalm 2, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, these short uh, 12 verses are the most, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Right? So you'll find this psalm in the Gospels, you'll find it in Acts, you'll find it in Paul's uh, letters that he writes to different churches, it's in Hebrews, and it's also in Revelation. It's the most quoted psalm in, uh, in the New Testament. Psalm 2, psalm 2 is known as what's called a Messianic psalm, which means it's a psalm that ultimately points forward to Jesus, so, so you could take this psalm and you could read it kind of on two levels if you like. It has two horizons in a sense. At one level, it has a reference to the uh, immediate historical context, right? So the time of King David, when he writes this psalm, it has that kind of 
context, the immediate historical context, as well as other kings of Israel. But on another level, it also has a reference to a greater king. And this particular psalm is, is known as a coronation psalm, right? It has, every, time I, every time I say that word coronation, um, I think of the movie Frozen. <laughs> I don't know. I just, every, it's like I cannot get that out of my mind. All week long, I've been thinking about Frozen. Um, I don't know. I just coronation, right? Coronation. All right. So it's a coronation psalm. It has some, and what I mean by that is it has something to do with the installation of a king to the throne of Israel. Right, so the, so the psalm begins by talking about the nations plotting and taking counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, and no doubt uh, that during those times in the historical context of the psalm, like King David and all the other kings of Israel, there's no doubt that they experienced fierce hostility from the surrounding nations because, listen to me, it's only natural that when you became king, the other nations, the other surrounding nations wanted to test out just what kind of king you were, right? Do you ever play King of the Hill growing up? Right? And what do you do? The person at the top of the hill, you, you're trying to dethrone them, right? You see how tough they are. That, that's, in a sense, what this is talking about. But if you look closely at this psalm, and we're, we're about to, you will see that no earthly king can completely justify the fury of the threats and no earthly king can completely justify the glory of the promises in this psalm. I mean, the language of this psalm is just too great for any earthly king. The things that are said about this king, right? the, the, the anointed one in verse 2, are, they're far too great to be talking about any earthly king. Right? I mean, the, the, the first hint that this psalm refers to is that, that title anointed. In Hebrew, that word is translated as Messiah. And in the Greek, it's translated Christ. And so this is what the psalm is talking about, right? The, the Lord has put His Messiah on the throne, and therefore we can read this psalm as talking about that greater David, that greater King. Jesus Himself is the true king that fulfills Psalm 2. So if Jesus came to be king, then what does that mean for us today? And that's what we're going to look at. And so this, this psalm is, is, is nice. Uh, it's, it's neatly kind of broken down into four voices. There are four voices that speak in this psalm. Uh, the narrator, the, the writer of the psalm, actually speaks on God's behalf uh, and, and as the world's behalf as well in the, the opening verses there. Uh, but, but there's four voices that speak, and, and so we need to listen to these four voices because these four voices still compete for our attention today in the world that we live in. And so the very first voice that we see is the voice of the world in verses 1 through 3. All right? And it begins with a question. Now, typically when we see this question, this question of why, typically it's, it's us asking the question, right? Uh, the, I imagine that there have been times in, in all of our lives, Christian, non-Christian, whatever, that we've asked the question why. We, 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 something happens in our life, there's a, there's a natural disaster or somebody is suffering, and we ask God why. Why is this happening? Why are you allowing this to happen? But here, God kind of flips the script, and he's asking us the question. He's like, he asked why, why do the nations rage? They plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and His anointed. And so, in these opening verses, we find that the kings, the nations, and all the people of the world are assembling together. 
They're taking counsel together, and they're all united in a common cause against a common enemy, against the Lord and against his anointed. But I want you to notice that this rebellion is very specific. It's not against the religion. It's, 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 it's against, it's against the, the Lord. And I want you to notice in your Bibles that the, the word Lord there is in all caps, which means this is Yahweh. Right, this is the, the, the covenant God. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the, the one true God and against his anointed one. And so what these verses are telling us is, is that all the people of the earth, every single one of us, uh, by nature are opposed to and in rebellion against God. What's interesting is, is that that word, Plot in verse 1 is the same word, meditate, to pour over, to reflect. And the reason I point that out is because, listen to me, this isn't just a spur-of-the-moment type of rebellion, okay? This is, this, is, this is people lying in bed at night. This is people driving in their car, constantly thinking about, and, and, and about how uh, they're, they're rebelling against the God and what are they meditating upon? What are they thinking about? They're trying to figure out how they can get out from under the authority of God. How how do we overthrow God's authority in our lives? God has set his king on Mount Zion, and we don't like it because we do not want to have a king. We want to be our own king. Scripture says that we have enmity against God that we are enemies of God. Scripture basically says that we, we hate God. I know that sounds harsh, but, but, but that's the nature of what sin does, right? Sin, we, we hate the fact that there is a king, a true king. And so what it is, it's a quest for freedom, right? Look at verse 3. It says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's a desire to be out from under the rule of God in our lives. And, and, and what they're doing is they're painting this, this picture that God is a harsh ruler. The, the language of verse 3 can be described as a yoke. A yoke is something that you would put on oxen to carry a heavy load. And what they're saying is this God is just weighing us down. Right, God's law is too restrictive in our lives. The commands, the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, right? It's just too restrictive, and we see God as this ultimate cosmic killjoy, and we don't like it. And this is especially true, hear me on this, this is especially true when the Word of God and my will clash. Can I get an amen on that? That's truth, isn't it? When, 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 when the word of God and my will clash, that's when I want to rebel. That's when I want to rebel. At that point, we want to burst the bonds and cast the cords. And one of the biggest lies, listen, one of the biggest lies of Satan is that God wants to enslave us. That's, that's what Satan says. Remember when he goes to the garden and Adam and Eve are there? What does God say? He says, listen to me, God doesn't have your best interest in mind. God, God wants to keep you out of the loop. God knows that if you eat from this tree, you will be just like him. Right? And so they paint this picture that God is this harsh ruler. 
But Jesus teaches in the New Testament that it's actually sin that enslaves us. And freedom is only found by surrendering to the true king. And isn't this what sin does, right? Sin causes us to be committed to our little kingdom of self rather than the kingdom of God, right? We, we want to make our own rules and decisions. We want to do whatever makes us happy. And, and do we not see this in our culture today? Listen, I have uh, my, middle, my middle child, Shepherd, is going to be four in just a few weeks. And uh, the other night we had gotten some donuts from Dunkin' Donuts, and we had a half a dozen of them. We come home, we sit them down, and Shepard says, I want all the donuts. And I said, buddy, I said, you can't have all the donuts. And he says, well, I can't wait till I'm in charge so I can eat all the donuts, right? <laughs> that's funny, that's funny, but hey, that's his, that's his, that's, that's his little dirty, I, I, say, I, I do tell my kids they have dirty hearts, by the way. Uh, you can judge me if you want, I don't care. But, uh, but that's his little dirty heart, like wanting to rebel against my authority that he can't have all the donuts, right? We want freedom to do what we want to do, to live however we want to, to marry whoever we want to, to treat people however we want to. The bottom line is our greatest allegiance is to ourselves and our happiness. And so what we want to do is we want to burst the bonds. We want to cast the cords away. And it's interesting that in the prophet Hosea, Hosea is a prophet and he comes later on in the Bible In chapter 11, God is speaking through Hosea, and he uses the same language to talk about uh, the rule of God over Israel. And and I want you to listen to this. I'm going to read this for you. Uh, You can write it down, Hosea chapter 11, verses 3 through 4, and then you can go back and read it later. But, But listen to what God is saying through Hosea and see if it sounds familiar to what you're hearing, okay? He says, this is God speaking. He says, it was I who taught Ephraim, which is little Israel, to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke, and I bent down to them and I fed them. See, God paints a different picture. It's the same word used in Psalm 2 where, where they make God out to be this tyrant and this harsh ruler. And yet in Hosea, it's this beautiful picture of God helping his little toddler to walk for the first time. You get this, this, this image in your mind that God is, is holding them on, uh, under their armpits, you know, uh, in case he falls and stumbles. And he's leading them forward as he takes their first steps, right? We're going through this with our youngest, Asher, who is 13 months old. And he's standing, and he's uh, furniture surfing, and he's, he's uh, been brave a couple times and taken a couple, you know, a step or two. But, but, but here's the thing. We don't, we don't set Asher down on the floor and just say, hey, good luck, buddy, right? That's not what we do, right? We're holding Asher under his arms, and we're, we're caring for him, right? That, 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 that's what the picture here is God is saying. This, this is what I did for Israel. I was leading them with cords of kindness. In other words, God's law, His commands, are there not to restrict us, not to be a, a, a killjoy for us, but, but, but to, to protect us. They're there for our good, right? God created us, and He knows what's best for us, just as a parent knows what's best for their kids, right? We don't give our kids rules because we want to punish them or squash their fun, do we? 
Oh, yeah, the, the rules are there for their good, for their protection. When I tell our kids not to play in the road, it's not because I want to squash their fun. It's because I don't want them to be killed, right? But even in that, you see, man, that kids will do what? They will push the limits. I mean, we, we know as, as, as kids get older, right, as, as, as they become teenagers, they begin to do what? A lot of them begin to rebel against their parents. Against the, uh, they, they don't like to be under the, the authority of their parents. And this is, this is what, is hap- this is what the Psalm 2 is saying, is that we don't like to be under the authority of God. And so we're trying to figure out how can we overthrow the rule of God. And God is saying, rather than being a tyrant, He is a parent who loves us and cares for us. That's the voice of the world. The next voice is the voice of God, and the, and, the, and the narrator is kind of speaking on God's behalf. But this is God, verses 4 through 6. And, and, and I want you to notice the contrast from, um, from those that are rebelling to, to the picture of what God is doing. Right? You have, you have this picture that they're plotting, and they're meditating, and they're taking counsel. And while they're trying to figure out how to get out from underneath God's authority, what is God doing? God doesn't even get up from his throne, does he? God doesn't even get up from his throne. At first he laughs. And this doesn't mean that God gets a kick out of man's rebellion, right? It's, and it's devastating results. Right? Ezekiel thirty three eleven says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked return from his way and live. So this isn't a laugh like, you know, God is amused. I mean, he is amused, but not like, uh, I'm, you know. It's more, of, it's more of he's laughing at their, their foolishness, right? The, the, their, their rebellion against him. God, God has a calm assurance. He's not sitting on the edge of his throne, biting his nails and saying, oh, no, what am I going to do? But, but notice the progression. He, he, he lets it go on for a while, and then he holds them in derision. Then he speaks to them in his wrath, and finally he terrifies them in his fury. And while the people have been plotting and figuring out how to get out from under God's authority, what has God been doing? This whole time, God has been working behind the scenes. He's been establishing His king, establishing His throne. God has appointed His king on earth. Right, verse 60 says, As for me, I have set my king, my anointed one, the Messiah who is coming into the world. I have set my king. And this is, this is what gripped the minds of those early followers of Jesus in the New Testament. All right, in and, 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 and John chapter 1, verse 41, uh, Andrew, one of Jesus' followers, goes to find his brother Peter. And what does he say? He says, we have found the Messiah, which is the Christ. In the first chapter of Mark's gospel, man, I love Mark's gospel. It's one of my favorite. It, says, it is my favorite gospel. And, and what we see Jesus doing when he arrives on the scene is he begins to proclaim that the kingdom of God is here because Jesus is the true king. In Acts chapter 4, I referenced this earlier, uh, chapter 4, 25 through 26, uh, this very psalm is quoted by the early Christians because uh, they, they realize that what's been happening in their presence, the things that have occurred over the last several months, the fact that their Savior has been crucified, that, that He is, he is uh, resurrected, that, that, that they realize that the Savior, uh, this is a fulfillment of, of the Word of God. And they identify the nations that are there in Acts chapter 4, 25 and 26. And they name him as Pontius Pilate, 
It's Herod. It's the Jews, the Gentiles. Basically, it's everybody, right? It includes every single person. And they're all assembled together, just like in Psalm 2, against the Lord and against his anointed one. See, they sought to get rid of the anointed one, but God says, I have set my king, and there is nothing that you can do to stop me from setting my king on his throne because this is God's plan to deal with the rebellion of humanity. And that leads us to the third voice, which is the voice of the anointed one himself, Jesus Christ, verses 7 and 9. And and Jesus kind of gives us some insight to this plan, this decree. You see the word decree there. This is a decree, right? The sovereign Lord has decreed this before the beginning of the world. This was the plan. And that's why God says nothing is going to stop this plan. I don't care how much you rebel, how much you try to do whatever, you're not going to stop this plan. And Jesus gives us some insight into what this plan is. And and, and so he says, look at verse 7, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. What this means is, is that Jesus is the unique one-of-a-kind Son of God. Now, I want to clarify something with you, okay? Because if you, if you read Old Testament Scripture, you will see that there are numerous times that other people are referred to as Son of God or Sons of God. Like sometimes the angels are referred to as the Sons of God. Sometimes the kings of Israel are referred to as Sons of God. But the difference is Jesus, unlike the others, is unique because he is co-eternal with God the Father. In other words, Jesus was not created. Right? Jesus has been from the very beginning. Right? John, John 1.14 tells us that Jesus was with God in the beginning. He has always been and he will always be. This verse is actually quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. It says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And what Hebrews is doing is it's just, just, the whole book is about how how Christ is supreme in everything. To to which of the angels did they ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. For that matter, which, which of the angels or kings or anybody for that matter did God ever promise the whole earth to, right? That's what, that's what God is doing here. I promise the, the, the nations as your, as, as, your, as your inheritance. Jesus is the unique son of God who was sent for a purpose. The psalm is also, also quoted at Jesus' baptism, his transfiguration, and at his resurrection. This is... God's predetermined plan for dealing with man's rebellion. And it involves the second person of the Godhead, which is Jesus Christ. He is the eternal Son of God who, who God sent into the world to pay the penalty for man's rebellion. And this leads us to the fourth and final ver- voice. And this is the voice of the preacher, um, possibly the, the voice of the writer of the psalm, David. <clears throat> But, but, but now that we know this, now that we know that Jesus is the true king, what do we do about it? How, how do we take what we've heard and, and put it into practice? How do we respond to this? Well, it, it, you notice it's an appeal. The, the writer, he says, Listen, therefore, O kings. Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath 
is quickly kindled. It's it's a wake-up call is what it is. This is a warning about the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb of God. It's It's a warning about the wrath of the Lamb. But there's a great promise at the end of this. He says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Where do you take refuge on the day of judgment? Well, where, where do you hide when Jesus Christ comes back for his church? Where, where, where do you hide, right? You'll never be able to hide from him. So what's the Bible's answer? You hide in him. The only place of safety, the only place of safety from Jesus is on the day of his wrath is in Jesus on the day of his wrath. Listen to me. This is the good news of the gospel, okay? Judgment has already come. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, all of God's wrath towards our Uh, of our rebellion was directed towards Christ on the cross. He absorbed all of God's wrath on our behalf. And the good news is, is if you place your faith and trust in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, then you will find refuge on the day of judgment. All of your sins, past, present, future, are forgiven. There is no in-between. There's no riding the fence Right? He says you can either serve the king, kiss the king, and you'll find refuge in the king, and you'll be blessed, or you won't serve the king, you won't kiss the king, and you'll perish in the way. This is a tremendous statement here, because what he's saying is, is there's no refuge from the king, there's only refuge in the king. This is why we need the king. This is why we need the king. He is the anointed one. He is God in human flesh. So what does this look like? If Jesus is the true king, how do we treat him as king? And this is the difficult part, right? Because as I said, I said this a couple months ago, I think it was. Everybody wants a savior, but nobody wants a Lord, right? You've heard that before. And here's the question that we have to ask ourselves, okay? Are, are you treating Jesus as king in your life, or are you just treating him as, as a consultant, somebody you just, you know? Is Jesus king, or is he just somebody that you consult with? And, and very, verses 10, 11, and 12 are very practical, very practical. And so, so let me just give you, I'll give you two things here that we can do to treat Jesus as king, the very first thing to do is surrender. The, actually, the, 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 the wording there, kiss the king, is, is an act of submission. If Jesus is the true king, then that means that I am not. And I need to recognize my proper place. Right? That's what he came to do. He came to dethrone us and our little kingdoms and enthrone himself in our hearts. Right, if you're, if you're familiar with the birth story of Jesus, uh, we read part of it this morning from Matthew's Gospel. 
But just a few verses after that, the Magi that come from the east, they're the ones who are bringing these gifts to baby Jesus. And do you remember the very first thing they do when they walk through the door and they see, at this point in time, Jesus probably would have been close to two years old. What's the first thing they do? They don't, they don't give Jesus the gift the first thing, do they? They kneel down, they bow down, they worship, they submit, they surrender. And that's what we need to do, is we need to submit, surrender. He wants our worship. That's the first thing, surrender. The second one, and I think this is where the rubber meets the road, is obedience. Obedience. Everybody wants a Savior, but nobody wants a Lord. And here's the thing, man. If, 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 there, is, if there is no mark for being a Christian in your life, except for the fact that you come to church once a week, then I would question whether or not Jesus is king in your life. Right? And if there's no obedience, if there's no desire for obedience, if there's no desire to have a desire to, to be obedient to Christ, right? And this doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect in our obedience. That's why Christ came, because we're never going to be perfect. But, but my, my point is, man, if there's not a desire to kill the sin that is in your life, if there's no, if there's no remorse, if there's no like, man, I, just, I, I don't want to do this anymore, and, and there's no like, I, I want to, to please God because of what he has done for me. That's our motivation. Our motivation is not to earn acceptance. Our motivation is, man, God loves me this much, and I want to love him, and so I want to serve him. I want to be obedient to him. I want to follow him. If, it's, if, there's not, if, there's not, if that is not in your life, then I, I, I don't know. I would question whether or not Jesus is king in your life. Are, are you making imperfect progress? Are you, are you moving forward? Are there things in your life you're like, man, I need to be obedient in this area of my life? Maybe it's an area of forgiveness. Maybe you need to forgive somebody. And I'm not saying this is easy, guys. This is, this is tough. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that lives in us, right, to abide in Christ. We need these things to help us wrestle with these things, right? And if you say, well, you know, I need to forgive this person, but you just don't know what they did to me. They don't deserve forgiveness. <laughs> Do you deserve forgiveness? Yeah. You see, you've got to wrestle with these things, right? And we could go on and on and on with tons of examples, but I would just encourage you to think about that. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to go into a time of response, and the band is going to come back up, and, and we're going to sing a song, and I'm going to ask the prayer team. There'll be some in the back. There'll be some up front. And that's what I encourage you to respond. You can come to the cross and you can pray. You can stay at your seat. You can pray. You can come down and receive prayer if you need encouragement. If you need to talk more about what it means to make Jesus king of your life, I would love to chat with you about that. But we're going to respond and just worship King Jesus. And so let's do that. I'm going to pray for us and we'll move into that time. Father God, we thank you. God, you, we thank you for this this plan that you put in place before the foundation of the world to deal with our rebellion, 
against you. God, you are a good God, and you're a loving God. We thank you for Jesus, and we thank you that he is the true king. And I just pray now, God, as we come to a time of response, that we would all examine our own lives and ask, is Jesus really the true king in our life, or are we our own king? God, we would just lay that down before the cross, that we would surrender and submit to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.